I am Paula Dahlberg and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews of people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 402. I'm your host, Andres Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sjastok. Hello. Hey son, hey son. How are you guys? Good, good. I'm fine, thank tutti you. Tutti va bene. Tutto va bene. Tutti va bene. I forgot tutto. <laughs> tutto. <laughs> tutto va bene. Anyway, I have some very important science news. Oh. A science update. Let us oh, know, Pontus. Okay. Yes, very important <laughs> to me anyway. It's from the website Live Science. I read the following flash news. Quote, a long lost tectonic plate dubbed Pontus that was a quarter of the size of the Pacific Ocean, was discovered by scientists studying ancient rocks in Borneo, end quote. So I think it's wow. upon time I get some scientific phenomenon named after me. <laughs> and, and, your, um, and your plate, of course. Yeah, and my plate. I always <laughs> knew you were, a, you were a great man. Um, <laughs> yes. Of, of, of such importance. <laughs> right, yes. Yeah, so from Life Science, I continue to quote scientists have dubbed it the pontus plate because at the time of its existence it sat under an ocean known as the pontus ocean so apparently i have an ocean as well or did have uh, a couple of million years ago <laughs> emperor pontus <laughs> yeah so i think it's only one thing to point out here uh, it's important not to confuse the pontus plate with pontius pilate which is something or rather someone rather different <laughs> The Pontus plate is all mine, and I claim it for all posterity. <laughs> okay. I applaud you on that Emperor Pontus plate. <laughs> well, he wasn't an emperor, was he? He was a, nah. a local head of something. Yeah, I think he was. Um, in I know the German word, but yeah, let's not go there. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering if if that that name comes from a person's name or like a surname, or rather that the word. Pons, which which is uh, the Latin for uh, bridge. I have looked into this, having had that name uh, a long time ago, though, so my research isn't new. But it, I don't think it has anything to do with Pons, because Pons is Latin and Pontus is older than than uh, the Roman. No, I wasn't name. referring to your name, um, but the the naming of that tactile ah. plate and the ocean. It, so it's, I'm just guessing here. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, there is a a region in I think nowadays in Turkey that used to be called the Pontic area or the there are Pontic <laughs> uh, mountains and stuff. So it's getting better every minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, let's let's leave this before we totally lose yes, our audience. So we are so not interesting. Based. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I had my f- 15 minutes of fame here. Let's move on. Unlike Pontius Pilatus, the mm. governor. Mm. Governor. <laughs> the governor. <laughs> yeah. Talking about six minutes of fame or more like uh, 30 minutes of fame. 
The call for papers for SCEPCON 2024 is still open and we extended the deadline until the 6th of November. So people that are interested in talking at SCEPCON for 30 minutes plus 10 minutes of discussion in Augsburg in Germany, they can click on the link that we'll put in the show notes and then, um, yeah, apply for that. We'll, we are very excited for that. And yeah, any, any topics that have to do with, um, with fake news or with pseudoscience or critical thinking, whatever. I'll be happy to read it. <laughs> I'll be happy to see mm. you in Augsburg. And, Augsburg. Mm. Yeah, in Augsburg. Okay. <laughs> Skepcon itself is on the 9th to 11th of May. Yeah, I think that's that's everything that is to to say about that, except for that it's in German. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, good news for for German skeptics, mm -hmm. I believe. Unfortunately, I uh, have some sad news as well mm -hmm. that I need to to bring up uh, from the Swedish skeptics. A prominent Swedish skeptic and former president of VOF, which is the Swedish skeptics organization, died last week. His name was Peter Ulausson. He was a writer, very prolific blogger. Uh, I'm not sure if he was very visible internationally, but his blog was called Factoider, which means factoids. But in Swedish, you can almost hear it's almost the same. Uh, it was, I mean, he had thousands of blog posts there over the years, and uh, he was very, he had a, a huge following. Also, he was instrumental in creating the local chapter of VOF in Gothenburg. And I don't know where they would have been if he hadn't been there to, to help getting them going. Very productive and uh, frequent contributor to the Swedish Skeptics magazine as well, which mm -hmm. is called Folkvet, for people who read Swedish. He, he also had a podcast lately, produced about 30 episodes, and the last one was in October this year. So he was uh, elected uh, president of, of uh, VOF in 2017. And then after a year, he was re-elected, but then he stepped down due to uh, personal reasons. And this is actually when I took over, by the way. I was vice president at the time. And after a year, we found out that he was diagnosed with a severe form of cancer. And he lived with that for several years until he now, unfortunately, died. He kept on working, publishing books, and he kept blogging almost to the very end. So very sad indeed, mm -hmm. and he died much yeah. too young. He was younger than me, just 51 years old. So we will That's miss him. That's not an age to, to die. No. Very no, sad no. to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Have we met him? No. I d no, I don't think so, but it, there is actually on our episode 25... I interviewed him uh, like for five or eight minutes uh, and put it on, on the show. Uh, mm -hmm. You weren't there. It was on a Swedish skeptics meeting and he had mm -hmm. just been appointed vice president at the time. Okay. So Peter Olauson, that's his name. Sad news. Well, um, I think we should probably try to elevate the mood a little bit. Right. Mm -hmm. After this. Um, and speaking of interviews that you recorded at uh, Skeptics Meetings, yes. I think you've got something under your sleeve now. <laughs> yes, yes. And I actually teased about this uh, maybe three or four episodes ago. So this is a, mm -hmm. almost a month old recording. But I met a lady called Paula Dahlberg at the Gothenburg Book Fair in September. 
And she talked in the Swedish skeptics stand about myths about crimes and law. And I thought that was so interesting. Mm -hmm. So I set up an interview. We did that uh, over Zoom a couple of days after that. And um, yeah, I I think we'll just listen to that Mm -hmm. interview. Awesome. Let's do that. So with me here now is Paula Dahlberg, who is a person who debates a lot of stuff in Swedish media, different stuff. But I saw her at the book fair in Gothenburg and uh, I thought to myself, I need to have her on the on the show because among all the things she's doing, she is part of a feministic true crime podcast called Nuance, which translates very obvious to nuance in, in English. And she talked about different myths regarding the judicial system, specifically in Sweden, but also internationally. So very welcome to uh, the ESP, Paula. Thank you. Really fun to be here. Great. So first of all, maybe you should tell us a little bit about that podcast. I know that it is in Swedish, so um, not everybody who's listening to this will be able to listen to that. But we do have Swedish listeners as well, and it could be interesting to, to hear what it's all about. Yeah, uh, I have had uh, that podcast together with two of my friends for about one and a half year now. And uh, the focus of it are mainly Swedish criminal cases. And we try to uh, also focus on quite new criminal cases that have got a lot of media attention. So one of my friends called Kayan is a journalist who in every episode go through what have happened. We go through the police reports, the police working up to the hearings in court. And then my other friend Hanna takes over and she is educated in law. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she goes through everything about the sentences. Why did the court uh, decided on these sentences? And then it goes over to me. And since I'm living, living in social media and have a very huge interest in reading reports of every kind, I talk about the discussions and what people think or say about the different cases. Fascinating. I think in the, uh, at, in our podcast, the ESP, we don't talk about law too much. I mean, sometimes we do, but not too much. And mainly because we don't know enough about it. So it's good to <laughs> talk to somebody who is deep into the that area. And what you yeah. talked about in the Swedish skeptics uh, stand there at the book fair was several myths that are common in this area. Uh, some of them are specifically yeah. Swedish myths, but some of them are more general so let me take a few examples from, from your talk there. And so you said that there's a myth saying that women very often get a harder punishment by the legal system than men do. But that's not apparently true. No, exactly. There are a very stern myth, especially, I would say, in feministic groups, that both the society and the legal system punish women harder than they punish men. But when I looked into it, and for example, find a quite large study from the Swedish criminal system that looked both on the Swedish context and international, they show that overall, it's very uh, fair system. And men and women get mostly the same kind of sentences for the same kind of crimes. But when it comes to misdemeanors, women get less punishment. And when it comes to very 
hard kind of crimes like murder and attempted murders, then females also get less punishments. And they also saw that when females commit those more severe kind of crimes, they're also more likely to be deemed insane. Okay, so it's easier to get well, to get off, I shouldn't say that, but to, you can get a lighter sentence. I guess people don't expect women to do violent things. Is that is it that easy? I would say so, that if a woman do especially violent kind of crimes, there are a kind of view that she has to be insane in some way. Yeah. Then I wouldn't say it's an easier way. They find that a female perpetrator is insane in the juridical word of insane, which is not the same as as know, clinically we, insane. Yeah, yeah, clinical insane. So you can be clinical insane, but still don't be juridical insane. It's yeah. different. Yeah. But women are more often viewed as insane in the juridical way, and then get forensic psychiatric care instead of a prison sentence. Mm-hmm. And Sweden are a bit unique in the sense of we say that you are always responsible for your actions in some kind of way. In other countries, they can say, okay, if you are insane, you are not responsible for your actions. You will get care, but you will not be punished at all all for the actual crime. Mm -hmm. But in Sweden, we say, no, you are still responsible for doing the crime. Uh, and it will still end up in your crime register and stuff like that. Yeah. And when you get care, it's always a sentence without any time limits. Mm-hmm. So in that way, it's harder than getting prison sentence, which are more uh, often time regulated from the start. Yeah. So, so, but the reason that this myth persists, that women are judged harsher than men, wh- why, does, why do you think that is? Because in some ways, women are more punished by the society, not by the jurisdiction system. There are, in some ways, this view that when men commit crimes, it's something people think you're supposed to do crimes if yeah, you're a man, more or less. It's expected of men, It's expected of men, yeah. yeah. And uh, therefore, people are more like, meh, about it. Yeah. But when women do it, they get more judged by other people around them because we are not expecting you to do this it's something wrong with you when you do this and they get harsher judgment from people around so so when it gets to social media and even traditional media maybe they are getting more exposure judged harder than men because if a man does something violent it doesn't make that many headlines exactly and then people think it translates also into the actual punishment they get but it doesn't. Uh, and what they can see also in this study is that if a woman that had done a crime is viewed as very feminine uh, in the way she looks, dresses, if she has kids and a family and stuff like that, she also gets even lesser sentences. Mm-hmm. But if she is seen as more masculine, even if she has kids, but in other ways maybe presents a quite butch, she gets a harder sentence. Huh. And that's also something in the way with the gender roles, how we view masculine versus feminine, that someone that's feminine is viewed as less capable. She's someone that can't really fully take responsibility of her life, of the way she acts, yeah. uh, and what she has done to other people. Why someone that is seen as more masculine 
is also seen as more capable and therefore also more responsible for what he or she has done. Yeah, interesting. There's another myth that I don't know if this applies only to, to Sweden, but maybe it does. But if you appeal a sentence, there's a myth mm -hmm. that you always get a lighter sentence. And you've looked into that and it's not really true. No, it's really a, a coin toss. It's more or less 50-50 if it will be harsher or if it will be lighter sentences. And a lot of it goes down to how the things read. That's the first level of the courts in, in Sweden, just to translate, yeah. yes? <laughs> exactly. How Tingsrätten uh, has uh, view. Often when Hovrätten, the, the next level, lighten up sentences, it's because of Tingsrätten have looked at the crime and then just feel a little bit how mm -hmm. harsh they want to punish someone. And then Hovrätten goes in and says, no, if we look at the praxis to the law and what span of punishments we have. This is way too harsh. And then they lower it. Yeah. But sometimes it goes the other way around. Tingsrätten has been too soft. And hovrätten goes in and we need to get this higher up. Yeah. But, but I, I guess it's the same thing again, that in the media, if you have somebody who's done something violent, it is mm. appealed and then that person get a lighter sentence or maybe get free altogether then that mm. makes the headlines. And then yeah. maybe you get the perception that it's always the case that when you appeal, you get a lighter sentence. But that is a myth if you look at the statistics. That's what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. I think there is something around 20,000 sentences a year. And of them, we maybe read about 30. Yes, that have gotten of course. Some we only hear of about the exceptional cases. Of course. Yeah. All the, the unusual cases. Exactly. All the other ones we never hear about. It's probably because people think that, yeah, that's what's fair. They got yeah. what they deserved. Everything mm -hmm. is good. Mm. So, so the ones that we do hear about can be twisted in the media to get reactions. Those are the ones that sticks to the mind and get the feeling that, oh, everyone just gets their sentence lowered. Mm -hmm. So while we're talking about appeal... Uh, we have three levels in, in Sweden, three levels of courts. So we have the Tingset, the, that's the first level. Then you have Hovretten, which is the second level. And then, of course, we have a Supreme Court. Yeah. And there is a myth also that you often encounter that the Supreme Court will hear cases where there's a lot of public outcry about them. But that's yeah. not really the basis for, for them to bring up an appeal. No, the Supreme Court takes on very, very few cases a year because their function is to look at the jurisdiction. So when something is unclear in hovrätten, then the Supreme Court will look at it and decide or say this is how we are supposed to interpret the law. But if everything is clear, even if people... Uh, are very like, upset about it. Yeah. Are, are upset about it or don't like how the system works. Then the Supreme Court will only say that, okay, but then the law has to be changed. We can't do anything about this. The jurisdiction is clear. The laws are clear. It just yeah. is what it is right now. But I think it comes a bit from America where you do have more of a political system even in the courts. 
people look at American television and TV shows and think that in America you can get an appeal if a lot of people say that this is unfair and you need to look at this mm. because then the governor can go in and say you need to look at this but that doesn't work that way in Sweden okay so, it's, so I think I prefer our system then uh, especially yeah, what's happening <laughs> with the Supreme Court in the US at the moment or for the last <laughs> couple of years it's been really really strange but that's a totally different subject i think <laughs> so the the yeah. supreme court only goes in to clarify when there are unusual cases you need to to establish what does the law really mean for these unusual yeah. cases and then then bring it up if it, the law is clear then they don't intervene yeah exactly all right so while we're talking about myths about uh, legal things in sweden you hear very often that Sweden has the highest number of rapes in Europe. We are the worst country in, at least in Europe, when it comes to yeah. that. And you're saying that's not entirely true, right? Exactly. What happens when people say that we ha have the highest number of rapes is that you look at reported rapes. And first of all, Sweden has one of the widest definitions of rape in the world. There are very, very few countries with the same definition of what rape is. For example, if you take a finger and put it up in someone's openings, yeah. uh, it's rape. In the most other countries, it's some kind of milder sexual offense, but it won't be reported as a rape. Hmm. What we also have that sticks out from other countries is the fact that in our statistics, we don't have that one report of rape is just one report of rape. So if one person come in and say, I have lived with my husband for 10 years and he has raped me more or less every day during those 10 years, that will count as thousands of rapes. Well, if I thousands of is, rapes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Or if someone are group raped, that is also counted once for every participator in the rape. Yeah. So when you look at the statistic for group rapes, for example, you have to cut them by half. Yeah. Not not to say that it is not right to count I, it like I that. Actually I actually mean, like the yeah. way we count it because for the victim is still one rape per person involved in a group rape. Sure. It's not of one. Of it is, yes. I think it's it's a good way to count. But other countries don't count like this. Their numbers will be much lower than us. You can't compare the numbers now. Yeah, so for example, they looked at Swedish numbers for 2021 and said if we had the same definitions as Germany does, our numbers would be lower than Germany. Per capita, I, I assume. Per capita, yeah. yeah. So if we look at other countries and see how do they define rape and then look at the Swedish numbers and define it the same way, our numbers drops really, really low and then we're somewhere very much in the middle. Like mm -hmm. Swedes like So to we're, we're just better <laughs> at reporting them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the the thing that I picked up most from your talk is something that I've heard from a number of places. And that is that if you have harder punishments, then you will deter from crime. This is a common myth. And I think especially by, among politicians and especially yeah. among Swedish politicians at the moment. But I think you ha hear that all over the world. But that yeah. is not true. So higher sentences do not translate into fewer crimes. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And I think that it's a myth that keep on living because it feels good. 
Yeah. It's very, very emotional. One of the reasons for some of the other myths is people getting angry about people have done horrible things and then they think that they get away too easy. Mm. Then they say you need harder punishment, harder punishments, longer and longer sentences. In Sweden and I know in some of our neighboring countries, they talk about that the prisons also need to be less luxurious. Mm. It should be really hard to be in prison. You should suffer. Yeah. And that the fact that they have like TV or games, can read books, go to school, stuff like that, that that's bad because then they have too easy of a time being locked up in, in a prison. But what you can see from all over the world, I have looked at research from New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, Nigeria, Japan, China, America, North America, both Canada and USA, and also different countries in South uh, South America. In all countries, no matter what culture, what starting point they had, when they did harder, longer sentences, the only thing that happened was sometimes, maybe, for a period of like three to five years, the crime rate dropped a bit due to some of the more harder, you know, lifestyle criminals getting put in jail and not coming out. But after those three to five years, the, again, lifestyle criminals, they have just recruited new ones to take the places of those going Of the to people jail. have been put away, yeah. Yeah, and then the crime rate goes back up. Mm. And this is terrible because it fits perfectly with taking the wrong decisions as a politician. Because it sounds right, you, you appeal to people's emotions, we should punish people harder for doing crimes. Yeah. And it may seem to work until the next election. And then mm. somebody else takes over and says, well, during our time when we made the, the yeah, exactly. punishments harder, it worked. Mm. And then that perpetuates the myth and, mm. and it's terrible. And I think it comes down to, and this is not me coming up with this, but classically you say there are three reasons for locking people up or putting them in, in jail. One is to punish them. They have done something bad, so we do something bad to them. That feels right. Mm. The other, which people talk about too little, I think, is that you want to rehabilitate them. You yeah. want to give them a chance to come back to live a normal life. Uh, that is not something that goes very well in populistic policies at no. all. And the, and the third reason is to keep them off the streets so they can't do more harm. Mm. And some of these are contradictory and some of them you can do at the same time, maybe. But you mm. have to, when you decide on the punishments, you need to think about what do we want to achieve? Is it just exactly. revenge? Then that's fine. Just revenge away. That's not a scientific question if you feel that that's the way we should do it. But if you want to accomplish more, <laughs> I almost said functional citizens... <laughs> then then maybe you should help them to get back to a, to a lifestyle that we can all accept. Yeah. One thing I think, I think people miss when they talk about how they want the prisons to be harder to live in mm. is the fact that when the prisons get harder, they are also more dangerous, not only for the prisoners, but also for the people working there as guards and uh, uh, cooks. Or mm. everyone working at the prison. Because when you don't get the chance to work or study or do something productive of your days, you don't get to enjoy things in life, people get bored. And when they get bored, sooner or later, they will also turn violent. 
So in Sweden, when we have had even better prisons than we have today, there were very, very low cases of violence between the prisoners and also between prisoners and employees. While in other countries where they have very, very harsh prisons, in some places, the prisons are so, so bad and so violent that the personnel doesn't even go in to where the prisoners live because they know if they enter into their domain, they will get killed. So they just stay outside and then the prisoners make up their own rules and way of living inside the prison walls because no one can stop them. Hmm. Yeah, so that is not, to me, something we should aspire to. But at the moment, the Swedish government, the right-wing government that we have at the moment, are talking a lot about harder punishments, building more prisons and putting away people for longer and making it harder in jail uh, or in prison, I should say. And uh, yeah. Yeah, we well, even one of the parties has talked about that we should stop calling it the criminal care system. And yeah. instead just have it like the punishment system. Yeah. Because they don't like the focus on care. Which is, is that a speci- specific Swedish uh, term though? Criminal care? I don't, I don't know sure. if it's, if it's used uh, also, but it's a term that's been used for many, many years in Sweden. Yeah. But now apparently we will call it the punishment center or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 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 So just another example on how difficult it is to get logic and rational thinking into politics. We are not bound to any political party in this podcast, but that doesn't mean that we can't criticize policies that obviously are not leading to the intended outcome because people don't look at the facts. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Is there anything else you want to bring up, Paula, that I haven't asked you about? No, I can't really think about no, anything else right now. No, we've got to make through the main things. Yeah. So thank definitely. you very much. Fascinating stuff. And uh, keep on doing what you're doing. Uh, we talk about science communication a lot. You're more on mm. the facts communication side, but I think it's m- just as important. And uh, good luck and to continue with your podcast. And people, I will put a link in the, in the show notes to the podcast for people who speak Swedish who may want to check it out. Yep. So thanks again, Paula. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. So that was my interview with Paula. Uh, Very interesting. I think there's a very, especially the common myth that in, in the public opinion, that you should punish people harder to get rid of crime. That does not work. Scientifically, that does not work. Actually, it's counterproductive. And um, we should all remember that. It's interesting. I remember uh, the first time I read statistics about that. uh, And it was absolutely clear that harsher punishments will not stop people from uh, committing crimes. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's so obvious. And yet, it's so widespread that this is the solution. And we have to be harder on them. And no, it's just ridiculous that based on that, policies are 
much more likely to be driven by the public opinion than by science, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> so if there is a widespread belief that this is the case, obviously, we're not moving towards the, the proper solution. Yeah. Anything I know about that, I know from uh, Lydia Benecke, who mm -hmm. also researches about crime, and she's like, she's a forensic psychiatrist. So she's also very much in, in that um, field. So uh, she also always says like, no, guys, it's like harsher punishments won't make crimes, mm. won't stop crimes from happening. But of course, I also see that politicians are usually under a lot of pressure to do at least something and then they will like overshoot. Not, I don't mean literally, but <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, almost. Yeah. Yeah, no, but I, I think it's our instinct for revenge. Mm -hmm. Somebody did something bad, so we should do something bad for them. Almost biblical, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but if we want to long-term work to make crime less mm -hmm. common, then we should help these guys instead, even though they did something bad. And it's hard to get that message across. Yeah, and it's, oh. it starts with better schools and more childhood psychologists, for example. Like, it starts at the very uh, start, I would say. And yeah, not preventive yeah, uh, exactly. measures are more important than yes. punishing people, or actually better. Yes, both. <laughs> All right. But since I'm pretty sure that we we all agree that policies should be driven by science and more people should be scientifically literate who are in the process of making decisions, right? Mm -hmm. So I'd like to talk about someone like that in This Week in Skeptical History, also known as Trish. And that person that I'd like to talk about is one of the uh, founders and the initiator of the Hungarian skeptic movement. Uh, his name is, was, unfortunately, his name was Professor Janos Szentágotai. And he was born on the 31st of October 1912. So this week uh, marks the 111th birthday of his. 111st. 111st. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, uh, 11th, 1st, on the 31st of October. Yeah, so what, what needs to be known about him is that he has very international origins because he came from a Transylvanian Saxon family. So obviously, German was a very important, German language was a very important part of his upbringing, so much so that he went to a German grammar school in Budapest in 1930. And uh, then he went to medical school in Budapest, um, along with his four brothers, who all became doctors. So quite a family. <laughs> <laughs> there, I, I should say. Then he went on doing research as well. He had a very interesting life of a lot of action. Uh, by action, I mean he was even a prisoner of war at some point uh, during the, the Second World War. And um, his main research interest was neuroendocrinology and uh, neuroanatomy. And uh, he developed a couple of new dyeing techniques, uh, dyeing methods for um, histological samples. And uh, his research was very much on the forefront of neuroanatomy. And I'm very happy to have been a student of one of the institutions that he led for a while, because he was a director of the Department of Anatomy at um, the University of Page, where I was doing my university studies. And uh, while I was doing my studies, I was very familiar with his book that is actually held 
up as such a great treasure, a medical and biological uh, and biology student, that it's used as the Bible <laughs> for <laughs> anatomical studies. Still, up to this day, it has been updated since many, many times, and it has been translated into a lot of European languages as well. He was also an amateur painter, and his works can be seen in a human anatomy atlas that he worked on with professional painter Ferenc Kish. So his scientific and uh, educational work was already amazing by the end of the 80s when um, he retired from, from teaching. But when the 1990s came and along with that, the, the political changes, he started turning his uh, attention towards politics as well. And uh, he became a member of parliament for a while. And uh, as such, he was very much interested in humanitarian and environmental issues. That's what he focused on. In the 1990s, he got into correspondence with James Rendy. Ooh. And they invited uh, him and another professor, a professor of physics, Jula Bence, over to Hungary. And that is still a very important milestone, that event he presented at the Center of Education of um, the Planetarium of Budapest. He was one of the founders of a society that was called the Society of the Respecters of Facts. And basically, that was the organization that kickstarted the Hungarian skeptic movement. And unfortunately, since he died in 1994, he couldn't see the realization of that in the form of the first ever national meeting of Hungarian skeptics in my hometown, Székesfehérvár, because it was held in 1995. Just after a year, he died. And that was where we started meeting each other with those who were founding members of the Hungarian Skeptic Society. So there is a direct connection to him. And we are basically, our organization is basically a descendant of that organization that he helped come to life. And uh, he was very determined when it came to educating public about science and why pseudoscience is pseudoscience should be excluded in all kinds of curricula and should not be part of the decision-making process because it leads to the wrong way. And the interesting part of his personality was that he was also a devout Christian. Ooh. So when he was a teacher in Pitch, he did offer Bible lessons as well to students. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> so that is a that is a very interesting part of his personality, but I think it was it had much more to do with his upbringing than uh, anything with his scientific career. Because whenever you see ev anything that was related to his scientific work, you never see a single mention of God or creation or anything. So when he was doing science. He was sticking to science and the, the, the methods of science and the conclusions were based on research done through that scientific method. So it was definitely, so he was one of the people who had religion as a personal realm of things that belonged to his personality, but didn't affect the way he assessed the phenomena surrounding us 
in the world. So it's really cool. I think that kind of distinction is very rarely seen. But uh, yeah, I consider myself very unlucky not to have met him in person. But his legacy lives on. And he's still one of the greatest minds of uh, Hungarian science and Hungarian scientific uh, circles. Very cool. So, yeah, thank you very much for uh, establishing the Hungarian skeptic movement. We try to live up to the legacy. It's difficult, though. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And he was born on the 31st of October 1912. So this is why he was uh, the person to celebrate in this week in skeptical history. Okay, speaking of being a devout Christian, (laughs) Pontus, are you going to poke the Pope today? Yes, I am. So, the Vatican Synod of Synodality is now finished, for now, I should say. Finally. Best name uh, ever. <laughs> well, there will be, there will be a follow-up next year, though. <laughs> but as I talked about two weeks ago, I think there are still a lot of confusing things about this. Um, uh, the, the bishops have now packed up their bags and gone home, but the formal conclusion won't be uh, until sometime next year. As I've said before, there's some important issues that have been discussed, issues that Frankie made rather confusing by giving his opinion on just before they, they were about to start. Let me talk about the role of women first. It's quite clear that the church is struggling to do two contradictory things at the same time. They want to preserve the tradition of keeping women as second-class citizens, right? While at the same time, they're trying to pretend that they're being a little bit more progressive. So giving women the right to become priests are still absolutely off the table. That can't happen. Even the possibility to appoint women as deacons, which is a lesser role, is very much under debate and unclear after this uh, synod, even though it's actually, I think, happening in some parts of the world. So instead, the synod concluded that the research on the female diaconate should continue, quote unquote. So no progress. They did, however, agree on the need to avoid speaking about women as, quote, an issue or a problem, end quote, that needs to be resolved. So they know that they have a problem with women, but we shouldn't talk about it. So because it's bad for business. (laughs) So. Another thing that was highly anticipated was the Synod's view on the LGBTQ plus community. Again, uh, we saw no progress at all in this area. In fact, if you search the Synod's statement that they issued for the terms LGBTQ plus or homosexuality or same sex, you don't get any matches. They don't even touch the subject. I think Frankie here is much more progressive than, than that. But uh, there was some opposition from especially African and Asian delegates that made sure that all such references were taken out of the final version of the document. So it's becoming a real divider in the church. Priests in Germany, for instance, Catholic priests in Germany, Annika, they are much more or less already routinely blessing Mm same-sex couples. But uh, that's a no-no if you talk to some of the bishops. So the the synod's position, or rather lack of position in these matters, have already met a lot of criticism from other parts within the church, really. So then we also have the issue of celibacy for priests. The document just concluded that there were different opinions (laughs) expressed on this issue as well. 
some arguments <laughs> can be paraphrased as, quote, well, to be like Jesus, we need to be celibate, end quote. So I don't know if there are, could be very certain that Jesus was celibate, even though it doesn't say anything else. In the, the, the I think the Bible doesn't have an opinion on that. They do have a, a very strong opinion. We, we do have a scripture telling everyone that uh, he was without wealth. Um, probably not without women, but definitely without wealth. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe he couldn't afford a lover, maybe. That, that was the problem. He wasn't wealthy ah. with women. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was followed by a prostitute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's also debated whether she was or not. That could be maybe she was just yeah, a woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. even if she was, even if she was, she was following her on her own accord. So uh, which makes she her a prostitute? Pro didn't have to pay him anyway, no yeah. matter whether she was a prostitute or not. Yeah. Well, at least some of the priests they want to be like Jesus, so they want to be celibate. That's sort of the. Ah, okay. the, the rationale there. We will see what Frankie does with all of this double talk that uh, came up. As we know, he can just choose to ignore the whole thing. Um, yeah, that's he, what I was going to say. That probably what he usually does. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> but, but it would be very disappointing for him, I think, because he actually has prepared this synod for, I think, three or four years. It will mm. be his legacy in a way. And uh, because I don't think he will have time to do much more, at least bigger synods. We, we, we don't know. He may live to be 100. So, But uh, he, his health is a bit shaky already. So we don't... This was his chance to put his mark on his legacy. And it doesn't seem to have worked. Okay, one more thing before we leave the Catholic Church. Just a quick note on an awful fact that we have mentioned before. Not news, but I think we should mention it again because it is important and sad. And we were sent this uh, fact from uh, listener Bob. Uh, we haven't heard from Bob for a while. It was good to hear mm -hmm. from him again. There was an independent report in Spain that was just published. A report saying that based on investigations, they estimate that about... 200,000 persons in Spain since 1940 have been sexually abused by members of the clergy when they were children. So, 200,000 persons. But it's even worse because if they include abuse committed by lay members of the church, the figure doubles. So it's 400,000 people. And that means that more than a percent of the population in Spain has been victim of child sex abuse by the Catholic Church. My first reaction would have been, fuck me, but that would have been inappropriate, <laughs> I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I, this is Spain. I don't think there's any reason to think that it's any better in other countries. Uh, yeah, so this is, this is terrible numbers. So we should remember mm. what kind of an organization this is. Yeah. Oh, and you said earlier that before we leave the Catholic Church, I was wondering... If there is such a thing to do, I mean, can you do that? Because uh, you, uh, many years ago, you said that there was an option for members of the Swedish <laughs> church yeah. to opt out. Yeah, yeah. But yes. is there such an option with the Catholics? Because I was baptized a Catholic as a child. You want it undone? You want it undone? I yes. don't know. In the in the old days, they you could have your um, and probably can, maybe still you could have your marriage annulled if you were not uh, happy with it. it. Happened to a couple of kings. You couldn't get a divorce a long time ago, but you could get your marriage declared 
uh, unlawful or somehow not valid. So I guess you yeah. could... Um, I don't know. I don't think you need to go to church, Andras. I, I think you can decide for yourself. I don't know if you can be unbaptized, but it'll be an interesting ceremony to develop. Yeah, but since I am baptized, I still am listed as one of the members of the church. Oh, but which you mean, I'm not happy about. No, I understand that. But mm. I would insist that you could leave, but uh, I don't know how to do that. So I'm going to have to go and find do out. Some, do some research and come back and tell us how it went. Yeah, I tried one way because I started pissing the church off a little bit. So, I mean, at <laughs> least criticizing them out loud um, no. in a very harsh way. I did it recently when I was in the Vatican. And uh, every time I'm there, I, got, I get furious because that's not more than a money-making scheme. It's no. like, uh, it's it's terrible. And the way they treat their visitors is, is outrageous and um, doesn't make any sense. So, yeah. Anyhow, thank you very much, Pontus, for poking the Pope once again. Thank you. That leaves us with the news. Yes, and the news are not that surprising, but I want to talk about a study that found out that SCAM, so-called alternative medicine, uh, doesn't work that well against diabetes. As no. I said, no big surprise here for us skeptics. Shocker. <laughs> um, <laughs> what's usually the argument is that so-called medicine, alternative medicine at least does improve the quality of life. Like, while it wouldn't help, it would at least improve the quality of life. And a study from Switzerland wanted to find out if that's true. They investigated the use of SCAM and its relationship with the quality of life, health-related quality of life in patients with type 2 diabetes mellitus. They uh, had 421 patients and researched use of SCAM as like supplements, campo, which is um, herbal alternative medicine, acupuncture, yoga, and so on. A total of uh, 161 patients used some type of, of scam. So if compared to, to 421 patients, that's 38%. For me, that's a big number. <laughs> mm. The use of health foods or supplements was the highest. And interestingly, the quality of life was significantly lower in patients who used any form of scam. Mm. compared to those without any scam use, even after they adjusted for confounding factors. Mm. To have that in a study is like, as I said, not surprising for me, but still a, hey, thank you <laughs> for finally proving that. But what does that leave for us? Well, that means that we have, uh, as skeptics or we as kind humans, mm. we should make sure that people are informed especially patients, especially people who want to make an informed decision about their health, including these people with type 2 diabetes. They have to be informed that uh, this is neither helping nor improving their quality of life. Quite the contrary, actually. Some people might say, well, there are studies that do prove that scam improves quality of life. Well, the thing is <laughs> that these studies are often of poor quality. Sorry to say that. There are other studies that uh, suggest that scam has no effect. So, of course, it's complex. Of course, we can't say, oh, don't take it ever. Uh, people should make the informed decision. We're, we're not dictators. No. I, I think it's it's not strange that 
people with diabetes try to eat healthy and yes. when they if yes. they then slide over to something that is pseudoscience that's not surprising but we should also i don't want to defend this but uh, we should also remember that it could be a correlation question here maybe the ones that felt worse were more strict on their diets and tried more alternative uh, things and that make show up in the study mm-hmm. as if so you don't know if the scam made them worse or they were yeah. worse to begin with and they tried to fix it with a more rigorous uh, lifestyle. Could be, yeah. But I mean, like if you, I mean, I had uh, not a secret here. I had gestational diabetes and I have to say once I ate well and that was like a controlled diet, I actually felt a lot better. So yeah, yeah. it actually improved my quality of life a lot <laughs> by like not eating sugars and stuff. Yeah, so, okay. but, that, but that's, that's of course like, understandable. that's quite of course, like, of course, my individual experience. Yeah. But that's also scientifically plausible. I mean, we know why that is. Exactly. But it's also like, yeah. um, that I knew from the start that it was, this was gestational and that there would be a, a high likelihood that it, that I wouldn't retain that sickness. Whereas hmm. with people that have diagnosed type 2 diabetes, they know that this will be like for the end of their life and they can control it with the diet, but still it will be there. So I can understand that this, that they are maybe a bit more, um, it is harder on them. Yeah. But we, what we can see and what we can really break this down to is that this whole blanket statement of scam will improve your quality of life. Even if it doesn't, if it costs a lot, it will still help you in that way. No, that's, that's not the case. So that's what we no. really can, can break it down to. All right. More about scams. Yay. <laughs> or, or rather so-called integrate, integrative medicine. It's hard to say. Some people promote that. That's combining conventional medicine with alternative treatments, such as homeopathy, anthroposophy, or herbal remedies. Some people think that is better because then you get be- be- the best of both worlds. You get the scientific thing, and then you get the, the wooey stuff as well. And more should be better, right? Uh, not so fast. Uh, there is a report from Wales that recently came out where we learned that one retired electrician called Hayden Owen Jones died in June last year, three months after going to hospital with multiple organ failure. And now the investigation is done. What happened? The thing is that Jones suffered from cancer. He was treated several times since 2014. So he had it for a long time. Two times he was in remission. But then the third time when the disease came back, nothing really helped. And in 2022, he went into chemotherapy drugs again and a steroid. But at that time, he also contacted a herbalist in the town of Abergele in the north of Wales. I don't know how to pronounce that. I hope I don't <laughs> If someone somebody. knows how to do that, please let us know. Yeah, by sending, exactly. Sending an, a sample of the recording. Please uh, do, recording. please do. I, I do not speak Welsh. Uh, so he contacted uh, this herbalist to get more options or additional treatment. And I understand that. I mean, nothing was really helping. He had been sick for a long time and he was looking for other options. By this herbalist, he was prescribed a remedy which included mistletoe, yarrow and lily of the valley, which I don't know what it is. I assume it's some kind of plant or other. There was also cat's claw, echinacea and corn silk in the mix. So a, a lot of stuff. And um, the thing is that some so-called natural remedies actually interact with 
and is dangerous to the combination with real medicine. And the yeah. coroner said that it was very probable that the combined effects of the herbal remedy and the chemotherapy caused the liver damage that uh, killed Mr. Jones. So he did not die from the cancer. He did from complications due to chemotherapy combined with this uh, concoction that he got from the herbal, well, scammer. I would like to say scammer, even though I don't know if this person is a true believer or not, but you should check out the science before you sell things. That's my position. Uh, mistletoe, for, un for one thing, is well known for being toxic. Uh, a little bit different. There are different varieties. Unless you it, kiss but... under it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you shouldn't kiss well, the... It could be toxic That as could well. still be toxic, <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> could lead to a toxic relationship, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, anyway, no, no, not to, uh, to laugh too hard about yeah, this. Sorry. It's always tragic, of course. But the, the lesson is don't mix herbal nonsense with your conventional medicine it can really go very very badly and this is one of the reasons why you should always consult your doctor your practitioner who is medically trained before you try anything else yes because they probably know about these effects or they can be applying some form of caution when it comes to additional treatment and don't try this on yourselves it's not a way to do science and find out if something works because if it doesn't you can end up dying and um, this is what's very safe about so-called vignette studies you know what vignette studies are not sure no no <laughs> These are studies that are based on a hypothetical situation. Participants of the study are asked about this situation, and this is how you try to find out how they would behave in that certain situation. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's not very accurate. It's not hard science. It's just something that gives you an idea as to how people think about a certain issue. Right? So this is what two French researchers did at the University of Lille mm -hmm. with two different studies. They were pre-registered online correlation studies on a, like a general French population. They, so they were all recruited online on social media sites. Some people were excluded, especially if they were having or had had an actual illness because they were focusing on an oncological situation. So we're talking about cancer patients. Mm -hmm. The important part was that nobody could be a, an actual cancer patient at the time of the study or beforehand. So that's important. This is what makes it a vignette study. So they did two studies. One of them was trying to find out if there was a link between generic and chemotherapy-related conspiracy beliefs and whether this had an effect on the intention to use conventional medicine or complementary and alternative medicinal practices. And the second study did a replication of the first study, with the additional part of the study being 
that they were considering the so-called orientation of the conspiracy beliefs. By orientation, we mean whether they were so-called upward conspiracy theories or downward conspiracy theories. The upward conspiracy theory being something that is targeting powerful groups. So the world-dominating groups of people who are controlling everything. So that's the kind of upward conspiracy theory. And the downward is targeting a relatively powerless group, like when we're targeting immigrants and refugees and the minorities in society. So those are much more like the conservative ideology-based conspiracy theories. Now, the results are the most interesting in this. Not very surprising, though. It turns out that generic conspiracy beliefs and chemotherapy-related conspiracy beliefs appear in this study to be strongly and positively related. And also, they have a negative correlation with the intention to take conventional medicine. Whereas on the other side, a positive correlation with the intention to take complementary and alternative medicine. This is the, the part that is not surprising. But based on the second study, when there was a distinction between upward and downward conspiracy beliefs, it looks like the upward conspiracy beliefs are much more in a positive correlation of the rejection of conventional practices. So, translating it to plain English, if you think there is a world-dominating power above all of us and uh, they are controlling everything, you are much more likely to refuse to go through things like chemotherapy because of a chemotherapy-related conspiracy belief that you hold. So, based on the methods, it has strong limitations, this kind of study, but it kind of gives you an idea as to how these people think about these kind of practices. And uh, we don't know whether in a certain situation when these people are actually in a situation when they need to choose, how would they actually choose But uh, this is what the hypothetical situation uh, gives us an idea about. It doesn't look good, Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't say it's surprising. It's just that, that it's good to know that this is the case. All right. But that brings us to the end of the news segment. And let's find out who's been really wrong lately. Yes, or really right, because in this case, I want to give an applaud to Apple TV. There is a new TV show out about the Enfield poltergeist. You will be happy to know that poltergeist is a German word, but I won't go into detail uh, with that, but more into detail about who the Enfield poltergeist was. It was a claim of supernatural activity at 284 Green Street, which was in Enfield, London, England. And this claim was made between 1977 and 1979. Enfield Poltergeist centered on the sisters Janet and Margaret Hodgson, who were 11 and 13 at that time. And they claimed they were haunted, that chairs would wobble and slide around them, that um, Janet would actually hover... Uh, there were the many, many claims, and there were also many investigations and skeptical interpretations, for example, done by one Deborah Hyde, <laughs> yeah. 
who said that, that there was no solid evidence for the Enfield poltergeist. And she says, I quote, the first thing to note is that the occurrences didn't happen under controlled circumstances. People frequently see what they expect to see, their senses being organized and shaped by their prior experiences and beliefs. Another person who wrote an article about this was Chris French, who we also know. <laughs> and he describes five reasons why he thinks that this was a hoax. And he says that the two sisters even admitted to hoaxing some of the activities. Then the, there was a photo of Janet levitating above her bed that can be recreated by jumping <laughs> and then taking a photo of it. <laughs> <laughs> the spirit of an old man who possessed Janet had a great deal of interest in menstruation, hmm? <laughs> which is neither spirity nor male, but okay. And eyewitnesses are usually unreliable, so that you can't really count on eyewitnesses if it's the only leg to stand on. It could also just be a schoolgirl prank that got out of hand. Hmm. Yeah. So now I gave you an insight of what this poltergeist was. And the cool thing is that now you have this TV show. They have authentic audio from back then uh, that they put it in. So you can hear the, the actual Ghostbusters, the actual real uh, <laughs> poltergeist. And apparently really well done. I didn't see it yet, but it, it seems to be very, very well done. Chris French also said there's lots of evidence to suggest that she's not hovering in midair. People have reproduced that image at home, jumping up and down on a bed. The case isn't strong. It's a good story. I found that really interesting. I'm excited to watch it. And so are other people. So for putting a high quality TV show out about the Enfield poltergeist and thus also informing about poltergeist and why these claims are usually not real <laughs> or even always not real. Apple TV receives this week's prize for being really right. Mm, wow. Good yeah, for um, them. <laughs> I got really interested, so I'm going to watch this. Yay. Uh, <laughs> and then you can give us a review. <laughs> yep. It's a three-episode series, actually. And apparently the third episode deals with how skeptics did challenge Morris's claims. It's really interesting. I'm, I'm really mm -hmm. looking forward to finding out what's going on there. If it's really a skeptical take on the whole thing mm -hmm. altogether, then it's a very rare thing yeah. to see in television channels. Usually what they go for is the sensationalism that leaves the whole thing open. I mean, how many times have we seen even National Geographic and Discovery Channel do that? Like, oh, is this real? Oh, we would never know. And that's the yeah. end of it. And uh, come on. <laughs> we can draw a much better conclusion than that. Yeah, thank you very much for that, Annika. Thank you. And um, I hear someone whispering the word of the week um in the distant in the distance M must be a poltergeist <laughs> must be a poltergeist or maybe it's so, a pontusgeist <laughs> pontusgeist um speaking in dutch or something I, I don't understand what it is so have we got a word of the week Yes, this week we are going to have a look at an email from a self-proclaimed new listener to the ESP. Welcome to the show, Olaf. Welcome. He is from the Netherlands and he had a couple of suggestions actually, but I picked out one because I thought that was the funniest one. It's not a single word, it is a phrase, apparently common in, in Dutch. 
So I will not tell you what it means, but listen carefully and see if you can make sense out of this. Oude koeien uit de sloot halen. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. I, <laughs> That's I get it. very self-evident. <laughs> Now you have a, you you can see it written on the screen as well, but the, our listeners can't. Uh, let's do it again. Here he goes. Oude koeien uit de sloot halen. Oude koeien uit de sloot halen. This is my best attempt to mimic that. But seeing it written, there are two words that I, as a Swede, can make out when I know what it means. Uh, Kuyen mm-hmm. and halen. And I think halen you should be able to work out, Annika, or am yeah, I wrong? Yeah, it's, it's very close to holen, which is German for getting or dragging or pulling. Dragging, yeah. Dragging is the right um, translation here. So, without Olaf's explanation, I wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> any, any guesses? Uh, no. I, what I, it means? Koyen? Yes, I, I do. A... I do want to guess. But, but yeah, Andrzej yeah. also wanted to guess. No, I, I'm, I'm just guessing about one word. That is a koyen. It mm-hmm. sounds a little bit like the koo, which is Scottish for uh, cow. Um, that is correct. Okay. That would that also have been my guess. We are yeah. talking about a cow. Yeah, uh, okay, yeah, I, I did have like a class in Dutch when, when I was 16. So, I guess... Out Ooh, is is like old, so old cows. Out sounds very much like aus, so or out the English one. <laughs> so it would probably be something like like old cows out of the <laughs> dragging. I don't know if it's old actually, because uh, Olaf uh, translates this, this as dragging the cow out of the ditch. So he doesn't mention anything about okay. being old, but maybe there is. I don't know. So what does that mean then? Why, when you drag the cow out of the ditch? It's a struggle. Why do you say that? It's a struggle. It's a struggle. <laughs> well, well. Uh, so very specifically a Dutch proverb, I think. I don't know of any equivalent expression nope, in any neither. other language. Uh, neither does Olaf, he says. But the sense of it is a mes- metaphor, of course, and it refers to repeating old stories that have long been forgotten. So... From a skeptical sense, I take it that you bring up nonsense from the past that should be forgotten, that should be left, done. Don't bring the cow out of the ditch again. So it reminds me a little bit, in the spirit of it, reminds me of James Randi talking about unsinkable rubber ducks. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's my take on it. It's a whole And, zoo uh, of uh, allegories that, that what we are using here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, a lot of lot of animals in this show. You could also uh, trying to beat the dead horse. Uh, I don't know, <laughs> uh, whip the dead horse. Uh, so we can, yes, lots of cows and uh, mm. ducks and, and horses. It could also be maybe in a way. Um, like I just thought that it's something like that should be left where it is and don't wake the dragon in a way. If you know what I mean. Yes, yes, I think that's mm-hmm. part Yet of it. another animal brought into the picture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Trust me on the dragon metaphor. <laughs> But Olaf tells us that it actually has a literal sense in, in the beginning because apparently it happened in the past, in at least in the Netherlands, that cows died and were found in a ditch and it was easier to just let them rot where they are than ah. to drag them out and take care of the carcass so don't drag the cow out of the ditch ah. just let it be there so it's it refers to a dead cow 
Well, yes. Okay. Yes. Because I thought that was apparent. Because, uh, but maybe not. Yeah, because that, that, <laughs> the, 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 uh, for some reason it didn't really work for me, the picture, because I ah. thought that it was referring to a living cow. It was more like when you're trying to force someone out of something that they sank into, like a position, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. like uh, an opinion that they are uh-huh, holding uh-huh. on to. Uh, but it's not. Yeah. Apparently it's not. It's a completely different thing. No, it's about a dead cow. Sorry for not making that clear. Once it's about a dead cow, it's clear as clear. I think okay. I had uh, I had all these uh, meadows in my mind that I've seen in the Netherlands that actually have ditches around them in- instead of fences, uh-huh. where uh, it's yeah. like it's yeah, it's so have- easy for cows that run want to run away to get stuck in these ditches and then die there. <laughs> Yeah, mm. but mm. it's better to let them rot there instead of dragging them out, dragging and, them out. And, and letting the smell out as well with that. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and with that note... <laughs> yeah, because of the water, something smells fishy here. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. No no more animals. <laughs> very, Welcome very to the ESP okay. Zoo. <laughs> the ESP Zoo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think we should stop that tangent, Andras. <laughs> Okay, I'll stop now. And the best way to stop me is to shut me up with a quote. So, uh, Annika, have you got one for us? Yeah, I'm glad you shut you up with a quote. Hit me. <laughs> um, and this week's quote is by Tycho Brahe. I hope I pronounced him correctly. Tycho Brahe. Yes. Yeah, like- exactly. Because in Germany, we... We pronounce him like that, but Mm. I, of course, want to be understood by people that speak English, too. He was Danish, and he's one of the most uh, well-known astronomers and scientists, Mm -hmm. born 1546 and, and died 1601. And he said, And when statesmen or others worry the scientist too much, then he should leave with his possessions. Yeah, and I think mm-hmm. he did that a couple of yeah. times, didn't he? Yeah. You're better historians <laughs> than I am, but he did work for a couple of uh, mm-hmm. kings or so, and um, when he wasn't happy with what they wanted him to do, he yep. just left. Is, th- is that right? Until he became the court astronomer for Rudolf II in Prague. That's what I was mm-hmm. thinking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, then he stayed on uh, until his death. Mm-hmm. And an understudy of his was... Johannes Kepler, mm-hmm. who took over as the court uh, astronomer. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it's, um, I think it's interesting to see because this is something that we have been seeing in a lot of states, in a lot of countries. I think it's something that you, um, Andras, also describe in Hungary that statesmen worry the scientists too much, so to say, and then really smart people will leave because they either don't feel supported or fostered in, in their home country and then they will leave. Yeah. Look at me. I'm still here. So it means that I'm not one of the smart people. <laughs> or you're not getting worried <laughs> <laughs> enough. <laughs> but I don't think that's no, true. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, there are still smart people in Hungary too, but uh, the phenomenon is really there. So it, it's real. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's interesting that this already happened centuries ago. Not a new phenomenon. Yeah, so um, that's why I chose this as a little quote to, to end this wonderful episode with. <laughs> Yeah, but can I express my disagreement with this? I mean, you shouldn't. <laughs> so even though Tico Brahe said that, you shouldn't do that. You should stay on and fight for what's right. That's 
Well, but you shouldn't let politicians uh, interfere with science. That's I think how that's I the it. first step. Yeah. If possible, politicians shouldn't interfere with science. And But I think the second step is I also understand everyone who does leave if they either if they can't do any science anymore whatsoever or if they're at like personal mm. risk yeah. i can understand yeah. that like 100 to leave the country then yeah but when it when everyone leaves who has a strong opinion and a different one from the ruler or the decision makers then uh, the only people who will be left behind are the ones who played a game as the decision makers want. I agree so, with you, of course, mm -hmm. but as I said, if, if there's like personal safety, bodily yeah, harm and so in the picture, then I can understand that people leave. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. So it is understandable in a way, but uh, we should try not to do that. <laughs> Stay on and fight for what's right. And... This is what we do week after week. <laughs> Not that we have uh, too much harsh criticism toward coming towards us or bodily harm is not something that we have to worry about <laughs> at the moment. Hopefully it stays that way. But uh, I'd like to thank both of you, Annika and Pontus. Thank you. Thanks a lot. For soldiering on. And uh, I'd like to thank our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Miss that. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. Episode 400? No, it's not. No, it's 402, but I will manage. I, I, I thought you may not remember. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're always <laughs> coming up to 400 now. It's like every episode after 400 is 400. Mm. 400 plus. It's 400 <laughs> plus. That's it. I, I like that. I like that. Get now. <laughs> and in the meantime, the dog is barking outside. Yeah. <laughs> It's Who probably the, the postman dog walking in front of the... the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Female... Female diac... I can't even say this. Diac... Diaconate. <laughs> diaconate. The female diaconate. Not surprising. And the fucking dog is barking again. Dead cows don't make that much noise. Um, un unless they blow up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so, how am I going to edit this? Tell we me, just please. start again. Let's start it. Let's yeah. start over. <laughs> <laughs>